This is SciBite, episode 110, for November 26, 2013. Welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we going to talk about this week? Today, we're going to take a look at lava under Antarctica, teaching artificial intelligence, neutrino data, greenhouses in the desert, studying moon's atmosphere, Hope for Kepler Space Telescope, Curiosity News, and as always, take a peek back in the history and up in the sky this week. Wow. All right. Well, we got a lot to get to, so why don't we kick it off with the news? All right. Where do we start tonight, Heather? All right. Marie Bird Land is a desolate region of Antarctica, which is buried, you know, deep beneath the West Antarctic ice sheet. And now researchers have shown that there is molten lava, molten rock, still stirring underneath that giant ice sheet. Lava under an ice sheet? Yes. Now, it's known that there are volcanoes in Antarctica. So there, and um, a few of them actually break the surface so that you can see, you know, there's a giant sheet of ice. You know, there's a mountain, climb up to the top of the mountain, and you could look in and you can see some lava. Okay. And actually, uh, one of them, Mount... Erebus, I think is the name of it, is actually one of the few volcanoes in the world that like maintains like live quote unquote magma inside its caldera. So it's like live magma down there all almost all the time. Hmm. And it's like had 16 mini eruptions this year. But what they're showing is that but they were this is one of those weird things where all right, stepping back a step, there are, you know, not only these really, really large eruptions and volcanoes can actually melt the ice all the way from, all the way up to the surface of the, uh, to the surface of the mm-hmm. ice. Sure. But now they're kind of looking underneath and saying, hey, there's this, there's a thinner part of the crust what they call the West Antarctic Rift System, where you can see a series of these rift valleys beneath this ice sheet. Now, here's where it's kind of came about with one of your favorite sayings is data in the data. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there are, there's evidence of lava, lava being erupted from these chambers through the ice repeatedly over, you know, history as these plates have moved. And so no one was kind of sure whether the magma was still kind of underneath there. And so they took some seismic monitoring stations and they installed them between 2007 and 2010. Really? Now, they were building these. Essentially, what they were trying to do is weigh the ice sheet itself. So what they were doing is they were studying how it was shifting the uh, the crustal blocks along that rift system. And so in order to do that, they say, all right, well, let's see. How is the crust responding to the weight of the ice? So they can look at the crust of the Earth right there and look at um, kind of earthquake data so they can see the waves as, as it moves around. And from that, be able to say, all right, well, 
it's moving this much, which means the ice much weigh this much on the surface. Ah. Now, now looking through that data to kind of see that, they noticed a series of small earthquakes and what they called it two uh, seismic swarms, uh, theater of the mind, earth, uh, air quotes. <laughs> and in January and February of 2010 and then March of 2011. Now, they were different. They really, The reason they kind of stood out was because during a the plates grinding up against each other, you know, where they would expect, um, where they're trying to look at the data where it's pressing against the crust inside of measuring the the weight of the ice, that's going to be at a specific frequency, like 10 to 20 waves a second. Now, this specific shaking that they saw was only two to four per second. So it's a great difference between what they were normally looking at. So they went, okay, well, let's break it down, you know, going through the earthquake waves and saying there's P waves and S waves and essentially what uh, seismologists use to look to say, remember that when they, you know, say this earthquake was a 7.2 at one and a half miles or so many kilometers underneath the surface right here. Now you can calculate that through the various types of waves that those, and then earthquake creates, you know, where it, where the two um, plates slip against each other. And so that's how you do that. And so they were able to use similar to locate these specific locations, you know, 25 to 40 kilometers before the earth, beneath the Earth's surface. So then they were able to say, okay, now here is specifically where it happened. Now they know they have this sort of linear trend, this line of volcanoes that they have seen. And then this seismic activity happened along that line just a little further out. Mm. So they're thinking that that's probably a result of some magma beneath the ice or some sort of activity there, which might soon be another, you know, volcano building up through the ice. Magma. Sorry, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it's it. It's okay. Yeah. And then they're also seeing, you know, the magnetic fields surrounding the area <laughs> that kind of indicate this uh, activity as well. So again, serious. This is this is a serious investigation on the lava situation. Okay. Yeah, they've had radar mapping that says they you know they can see a layer of volcanic ash um, embedded inside the ice. So you know it's like each year snowfall falls on top, and then you have you know it's pressing down, and the bottom is sort of mm-hmm. melting away. So it's you're looking back through time as you dig deeper into the ice, and so they go down so far, and they can see this layer of ash where. You know, once it was at the top and a volcano erupted and a whole bunch of ash laid on the surface of the uh, of the glacial ice at that time. So it's interesting because, you know, one is just looking at this and thinking the crazy idea of, well, you know, it's obvious that there could be, you know, a volcano in the in the ice. But mm. magma, the volcano, it, it does definitely kind of seem odd mm-hmm. when you think about it at it's first. It's like fire and ice living together. Yes. Now... What breaks it apart is saying, okay, it's interesting to look at because the more magma or the more heat at the bottom of the glacier, then you're melting the base of the ice sheet oh, faster. Yeah, right. Which right. means that, you know, the ice sheet above, could it possibly move um, everything along quicker? Would you be able to, would you be melting the ice sheets faster, moving things along that way? So, mm-hmm. hmm. interesting, contributing to a, an already kind of like a melty situation. Yes. So, so uh, where does this leave us now? So uh, now that they know there's there is lava down there, but 
what we don't have all the answers so we're still kind of waiting to hear or what where's it where's that leave it yeah it kind of where we leave it right now we know there's volcanoes that you know some of them break the surface we know some of them were underneath the surface it's just that we're seeing additional you know new pockets of this at at a further point in the line it's sort of hey can we see this starting up now instead of trying to look into history and kind of guess how things started we can actually see how they start now and sort of be able to get a better idea of how things are moving. Maybe all that ice is just one big volcano eruption away from melting, Heather. Probably not, huh? Probably, Probably not. not. Probably not. All right, any other thoughts on that story? No, let's just see where it goes. All right. Wait, that's not the right one. This is the right one. There we go. There you go. I just want to take a quick little pause right here before we get into the news bite, which you got a tease of, right? Stop, stop, don't jump. Stop, not yet, not yet. Watch out, band. <laughs> so a uh, little uh, public service announcement over on the Jupiter Broadcasting site. Uh, you know Jupiter Broadcasting gets by on your contributions, either direct support or when you shop and use our affiliates. Here's the thing. We no longer have a browser extension. What? I know it's true. In fact, even if your browser extension is installed, it no longer works. Uh, we had a little dust up with Amazon, and so we've had to make some changes. And so in order to contribute to Jupiter Broadcast, you need to click through on a product on our website, or down below we also have those shopping links that we've always had at the bottom of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. But, you know, take, take for example, the fine SciBite show, Heather. Almost every week in the SciBite show, we have a pick of an item that you should grab on Amazon that we like quite a bit. Uh, and uh, as you know, as time goes on, we'll have different ones. Like last uh, last episode, we had Star Trek Season Five: The Next Generation. If you click that, like those ones where there's an actual product in the show notes, it'll automatically apply your country tag, take you there, and anything you buy after clicking that, even if it's not that particular item, will be tagged with our affiliate ID. Or you can click through on that shopping link at the bottom of our site. And by doing that, a portion of your purchases contribute to Jupiter Broadcasting. Boy, oh boy. We're going to need everybody we can because we have new affiliate IDs. A whole system's been switched over, and we've uh, we've sort of been started from square one again with the affiliate system, kind of a total system reset, and we could use your support. So if you click those links before you shop, we'd really appreciate it. All right, Heather, now it's time for the News Bite. Pa-pum. All right, so what's in the News Bite? All right, so headline... Read the story. Got pointed out to me. Frightened me to death. <laughs> Quote, researchers are trying to teach common sense to an artificial intelligence by watching the internet. Uh-oh. <laughs> that frightened me so much. That's like, like there- oh no, Heather, that's like telling it to learn artificial intelligence by watching reality TV. <laughs> yes. So, no, dig into the first paragraph and actually read what it's saying is that they're trying to let this artificial intelligence browse millions of pictures on the internet and see if it can figure out what they are. Okay. All right. Okay. So it's using like, okay, so here's a picture of a Camaro, a pencil sharpener, uh, a desk, a lemon. Yeah. Okay. So since mid July, it was started searching these images, the never ending image learning meal. So 24 seven, it started deciding, all right, what, the, what is this picture? Identify it. Now, how does it relate to this picture over here? So in four months, it had you know, 200 processors at 1,500 objects, 1,200 scenes, all these kind of things identified, and it's making connections between them. Hmm. So it's, Yeah, like here, for example, it says um, a zebra can be found in, in the savanna, right? A leaning yeah. tower can be found in Pisa, 
right? An Airbus yes. 330 ha- uh, ha- uh, can look like an airplane. <laughs> Has an airplane yes. nose. <laughs> yeah. And not all of them are necessarily... Profound. <laughs> profound or correct. Yeah. Was well, it some of my favorites? Uh, rhino can be a kind of antelope. Oh, nummy. <laughs> Actor can be found in a jail cell. Well, that's true. And my hilarious favorite, news anchor can look similar to Barack Obama. Well, I could see that too. I could see that too. <laughs> this, it's one of those things where it's like those connections that sound funny and then you're like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> I can sort of see where that's coming from, but rhinos and antelopes, I have no idea where it's It's not Skynet from. yet. That's for sure. No, not yet. They're trying to get there. It's, they're trying to be able to make a computer be able to make decisions. It's like artificial intelligence to look at everything and make sort of decisions scary. Um, but so they're having, there is a lot of things that obviously humans can do much faster. Like, hey, can a giraffe fit in your car? You know, without having to dig out the pencil and paper or the calculator, you're going to say no. Right. Most likely. Right. You just know that. Yeah. But a computer would have to stop and be like, hmm. Well, a giraffe is this big and your, ca- yes. your carrying capacity. You a giraffe of 16 feet tall and right. this mass and this <laughs> diameter. So it's like trying to actually calculate it. So there's some steps between that we're trying to sort of bridge the gap for. So it's been able to figure out, like you said, that zeroed in Savannah. They're trying to see, like, okay, well, they're kind of amused that a search for Apple brought back the fruit and the laptop computer. Sure. <laughs> well, I guess you, know, you think about what an opportunity, speaking of data in the data, uh, <laughs> the opportunity of just if you could set up a computer program and just have at it and let it go, mm-hmm. um, you know what would be you know what would be really good is and this I think I bet I bet you anything Google's doing something like this right I bet they look at all the signals people generate and they figure out patterns um, and then they then they then they route it into products like Google Now and things like that but the internet is just this huge source of of information and speech and images and video why not yeah. It's a little dorky now. I mean, the implementation is yeah. a little weak, but it's only been going for what? What'd you say? Six months? Uh, four. Four? Oh, wow. See, there you go. There you go. And yeah. now it knows that a news anchor looks like Barack Obama. Yes. And in the future, it's turning scary again. They're going to turn it on YouTube videos to look for connections between objects. Oh, well, uh, hello uh, to ro- the robot in the future. Uh, yes. Hello. This is science. This- <laughs> please don't. Please, when you're taking over the world, please reconsider it to see we gave you a thumbs up and a theater of the mind thumbs up and smiley face. All right, well, so if we fast forward 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, maybe this is the computer system that pilots a spaceship while the crew sleeps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, but if we're not going to go to space, we are going to do some desert farming, aren't we? We will. So, Astro... Look. So they have managed to some farming. Oh, we'll skip down to that one first. Oh, did I jump ahead? I'm sorry. That's I okay. didn't mean to. Sorry about that. It's okay. Well, it's because neutrinos are hard to see. I scrolled down. That's what it was. That's what it was. Oh. All right. Well, yeah. All right. Let's talk about it. So, uh, so this this is interesting because it's a way to feed potentially billions of people, right? The feeding I... feeding nine billion people. It says in the video. Yeah, that sounds so... pretty impressive. Now, it's not necessarily a recent publication or recent news about this, but I just recently found it and found it very interesting. So they had a pilot plant built by the Sahara Forest Project, which was able to produce 75 kilograms of vegetables in you know three cups annually. So it kind of made it comparable to commercial farms in Europe. And it's really only consuming sunlight and seawater. Okay. I mean, that's pretty great. So, and it's in the middle of the desert. Yeah, so, you know, have a big greenhouse, and at one end, 
you have salt water trickling over a grid-like curtain. So, you know, water, um, wind over water has a cooling effect. Mm -hmm. So it now it has cool, moist air blowing over the plants inside. And the other side of the greenhouse, you have a network of cold pipes of cold seawater. And so you have some condensation when it hits that, when it hits those pipes and the condensation comes down and that's actually fresh water. Yeah. So then in, in a separate part, you have a concentrated solar plant, which uses mirrors in the shape of um, parabolic. So it has a curve. And so it has very, uh, you know, concentrated, essentially uh, sun, solar heat. And then they put that through some fluid pumping through the pipes. Now, this fluid, heated fluid boils water, and then the steam from that drives a turbine, which generates power. So now you have- This is kind of sun, amazing. So the sun comes in, you're creating steam, then you, the steam is generating the power yeah. to, cr to run the rest of the control systems <laughs> and the pumps, and you know to use it for any desalinating any water for the irrigation of the plants. That is a green now, greenhouse, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, what was really cool was I noticed that they kind of noticed a surprise was that just out in the early experiments that just outside the greenhouse, that cool air, cool mist, moist air was still kind of leaking out a little bit, mm. which was encouraging other plants to grow outside the house. Uh. Now, um, one of the plants was able to actually use that to their advantage by using um, barley and... Um, salad rocket or arugula whatever however it is properly pronounced and those are sort of naturally desert plants and by using those sort of growing quasi naturally or kind of boosted just around the outside it actually helped reduce the air temperature inside the greenhouse oh so it was kind of aiding everything as well that is awesome so that's like a, that's like a uh, the the perfect example of how if you can build a closed system like that, all of this stuff can really sort of you can you can if you really if you look at the science of how all of this closed ecosystems work, you can really build mm -hmm. something amazing. Yeah. So cool. And so the, you know their hope is obviously that hey you know we see you know we're importing this amount now what would it take to get as close to the amount of imports as we as they can. You know, yeah. as close as they can meet. Yeah. So how can they make these greenhouses be small and produce good yields right. and maybe, you know, move to a commercial plant, right. you know, maybe four crops a year that right. they could be awesome. So kind of looking long term down the road to see, all right, well, it works on this kind of a pilot plant scale. Now let's scale it up, you know, two times, ten times. Now scale it up another step and see kind of how they connect and if it still works on a larger area in the same way. Very cool. All right, well, now let's do a proper uh, two-byte news. Bring the band in. Come on, guys, get in here. Let's uh, right, yeah. Here we go. Good job, guys. There you go. So there's those neutrinos. I found them. Yes, they were, they're very sneaky. And they're really <laughs> hard to see, Yeah. Well. which would probably be why. Yeah. So now astrophysicists have managed to detect and actually record the what they call cosmic neutrinos. Now these are practically massless particles streaming through the Earth, speed of light from outside the solar system. What? 
Now, if they actually strike a surface, it, the amount of energy is about as powerful as a baseball pitcher's fastball. So, but finding them actually interacting with the Earth is a whole other subject. So you're telling me that we have these things that smack into the Earth that are as that would be hitting as as hard as a pitcher hitting you, and we don't hear about this very often because they don't hit very interact. Often. Ah, okay. They don't hit any of the atoms or molecules that we actually are sitting here with yeah. very often. Okay. Okay. Well, so tricky. You know, it goes back to cosmic rays, and they're always trying to figure out, you know, what is the source of cosmic rays, and you know, these have the high energy. Um, they have very high energy, so there's a lot, well, maybe they come from supernovas or black holes or gamma ray bursts and all these different things that they say, all right, we think it comes from here, but it's really hard to detect the origin of them. So what they do is they say, okay, well, let's, you know, neutrinos have, you know, something to do with them, so let's look at those, except those have no charge, hardly any mass, huh. and but they are produced when cosmic rays interact with their surroundings. So they're like, okay. Neutrinos travel in straight lines. They act as like pointers. So essentially, it's once it's created, it travels in a completely straight line. Now, since it started working, I mean, this what they have a um, it's the, 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 their detector is what they call Ice Cube, okay. and it is located very good reason because it's located at a cubic kilometer of ice oh. in the South Pole. Oh. So what they did is they dug down 86 different um, holes, and in those strings they embedded um, was it 5,160 optical modules. So they have these strings laid out in this square. So it's a nice cube, mm-hmm. and they have all these digital uh, optical mo- monitors looking for um, looking because when a neutrino actually interacts with the ice, it creates a tiny little flash of blue light. They call this uh, Chernok of light. And it's so from there, they have all these little cameras saying, all right, look for this little light. And so what they're able to do is see that. So if you see the video in the show notes, it has a whole bunch of vertical lines. And that's why those are all the different um, strings of cameras. Wow. Jeez. Now they have a lot of different, you know, small um, data that's coming through, you know, little bits interaction or, you know, noise coming through. And then you can see there's giant streak through there. Yeah. So that's that, where, that's, that's them catching it right there. Yeah. That's them catching it. Now there've only been 28 events that they have ever caught on this thing before. Okay. <laughs> so there's very few. So it's really nowhere near enough to be able to, to say, this is what they are coming from. But it's sort of a, very interesting that they actually caught another one. And so it's actually remote. You don't have to do anything. It just sort of calls home when something happens. But So they can just leave them out there ch- checking? Yeah. That's neat. Well, that's good since it's cold. Yeah. Oh, all right, Heather. Well, uh, speaking of neutrinos, let's jump in our neutrino-powered uh, uh, lifter, go up the space elevator, and do a <laughs> spacecraft update. All right, Heather, what is our spacecraft update? Alrighty, lady, the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer. So it has actually hit its low, uh, low altitude orbit. And now you read the name, you're like, all right, dust. Yeah. But lunar atmosphere? Hmm. 
Well, I remember we talked about this when it was when you first talked first covered. Yes. I was like, well, didn't they land there? Don't they know what the dust situation is? Yeah, but it's not necessarily because they're they don't know everything. They saw on the Apollo lunar landings and some of the um, orbiters, they see this column of dust mm, mm-hmm. that sort of raises as you lofts into the air as you cross into sunlight and darkness. So that sort of terminal uh, barrier. So it's reached the moon now? Yeah, it's at the moon. It is started. It's, you know, collecting a data as a 100-day-long mission, which will, the, the length of it will actually depend essentially on how much fuel is available, stays there. So if it's very fuel efficient, then maybe they can, you know, bump it out a couple of days. But it really just depends because they're circling at a very low orbit. Mm. Washing, washing machine size probe. And it's circling around so it can look to from lunar day to lunar night. And it'll be able to get some precise me- measurements of what, you know, the moon's, what's going on. Be able to look for lunar dust above the surface of the moon. And from this, you'll be able to get a better idea of, hey, what's happening on other planetary bodies like um, Mercury or various um, asteroids. To sort of look at that and be like, all right, well, let's get a better idea of what's happening when sunlight and dark hit the surface of a a dusty uh, surface of a, you know, some sort of moon, you know, other things. Yeah, moons or what, anything else out there in the solar system. Now, we've also got a little uh, Kepler update, too. We do. There I, is hope. No, there could be a smiley face. Really? A splain. Yes. A splain. Okay. So... Back in May, there was giant sad faces and crying faces. When I was talking about, you know, Kepler had lost w- another one of its gyroscopes. Now, the head came with four gyroscopes. One of them died out a little while ago. Now, it needed three in order to maintain the very precise precision it needs mm. to stay focused on those stars steadily enough to be able to look for the dips. Then it lost another one. Then two just wasn't going to do it. So... What they have done now is they said, okay, never uh, never try to keep a good scientist or engineer down. <laughs> like, okay, well, what was part of the reason? Now, part of the reason why they needed three was because you have solar pressure, which is, you know, the waves of the pressure exerted by the, the pressure exerted by photons of sunlight striking the spacecraft. Wow. Was kind of looking, was making it unsteady. Now, because of the fact that it was angled a specific way, it wasn't hitting the spacecraft in in an equal manner. So it's kind of throwing it off a little bit, off balance. So it needed three of the gyroscopes to maintain its balance in that position. Now what they're thinking is there is a... They're saying, okay, well, what if we oriented the spacecraft so that the solar pressure, the photons hitting the spacecraft were completely even. Hmm. So what if you move its position so that those are in a making even format? So maybe you essentially using the sun's pressure as a third wheel. Aha. Uh-huh. So use that, you know, stabilizing in one direction, then use the other two gyroscopes to stabilize in the other direction. Now they're actually kind of currently testing that idea. And through late October, just the initial test, they're able to say, all right, well, here's an image of the, you know, the full field of what they had. And they were 
able to collect it over 30-minute periods of time, and they were actually able to get an image quality within 5% of what was there before. So even in a preliminary test, they were able to get really close. Well, that's kind of incredible if it's within 5%. Yeah, so, of course, dis- additional testing is going to be underway. Now, 5% is seems awesome, but, you know, will it be enough to spot the planets, um, and will exoplanets, always, in will the same way? Will it always be that way, too? Could it maybe next time be more like 30% of a gap? Well, that's kind of what they're saying is, all right, well, this 30, first 30 days got us to 5%. Now, is that 5% enough to make the precise measurements that we need? Right. Well, yeah. Question mark, we'll see. So now they're kind of making additional testing, more longer-term testing, to kind of see if they'd be able to maintain that for, you know, days and weeks and so on. So what they're doing now is there's a decision-making process in the 2014 Senior Review, which is a biannual assessment of all the missions saying, all right, you get the check mark, you get the dollar bill, you get a sad face, I'll see you again next time. So now this... It's a mission called uh, K2. So now they're kind of saying, all right, well, we want to, we're going to propose a budget for this. And they'll probably do it um, by the end of this year. They'll have the whole concept and the everything ready to go for them to say, hey, guys, we can be cool again. Give <laughs> us a little money and we'll be extra awesome. So it's in, in the works to see if they can maintain that same measure, amount of precision, how close they can get over the long term. And then have all that data ready to hand over and hopefully they'll be able to have some funding to continue. Very good. All right, Heather. Well, while we're up in space, let's head over to Mars and do a Curiosity update. And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. So what's, uh, is Curiosity up to much right now? What's going on over there? All right, so... We had a software glitch right. a little while back. Right. And then it came back and it was fine. They rebooted. And unfortunately, <laughs> they had a temporary sus- suspension in, da- in uh, science again oh. um, because they had what's called a short, what they call a soft short. Yikes. Yeah. So it was a couple of days where they sort of. I guess it's better than a hard short. Yes. Uh, so they ran a couple tests, checked the everything, the. Vehicle was complete, you know, the uh, project manager came out and said, it's completely safe, it's capable of operating, um, it's within the margin of error, we're just stopping and seeing what's happening because something weird happened. So what they saw was the um, the voltage difference between the chassis was uh, and the 32-volt power is generally about 11 volts, and it jumped down to 4 so there was a big difference. Now, of course, it has a floating bus, which means essentially it's it can be happy with a, a range of voltage differences. And so it kind of gives it a little bit of a margin of error there. Now, a short soft, what they, sorry, a soft short is where they're thinking there's some leak through something partially conductive rather than a what they call a hard short. And a hard short would be electrical wires con- contacting each other. Ah. Uh-huh. So they went back and they said, all right, so a soft short reduces their robustness. They can't tolerate, you know, it's one step further along the line. It was like, well, we can't tolerate other things like this. 
Um, so it could pose a problem somewhere else or point to something happening. Now, they already had one soft short on the landing day. Now, that was related to some uh, some of the landing paraphernalia from the explosive release device. Oh, really? Yeah, so they had something there that was, you know, that caused a little bit of problem, but then that was okay. Paraphernalia. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that lowered it from 16 to 11, ah, but uh-huh. it never really affected anything. So now what happened is they went, okay, well, obviously we need to know what in the world happened. So they went back and they saw that the da- the uh, voltage itself actually the change actually happened a couple of times, about three times in the hours before it became a persistent problem. So, okay, they need to figure out what's going on and how to do that. Now, what they had built in was software that said, hey, when there is a voltage change, you know, you're usually recording about eight times, uh, about once a minute, the voltage. So, like, Record it down, send it back about once a minute. Now, when it saw a change like that, it switches to eight times a second. So then suddenly has a great deal more data about what's going on. So then their engineers will be able to go in and say, all right, instead of once per minute kind of guessing what's going on, now you can see it, you know, over eight times a second. So I can see that where, you know, in my lab where it's, okay, well, you see something funny happening every once in a while. And that could just be because... It's, you know, you are reading it once a minute and then it says two, 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 ten, two, like, hey, what happened? And it could be just because that every minute it's happening a couple times, but it only actually reads once in a while. So with this fast pace increase in data, then you can say, all right, what is exactly happening? Now, they're actually able to go back and figure out most likely what it is. Now, there is what they call the multi-emission radioscopic thermoelectric generator. So they figure that it's probably an internal short there. Doesn't affect operations of the rover in any other way. Um, Similar things on other spacecraft, including the uh, Cassini spacecraft at Saturn. They've also seen shorts similar to this. No loss of capability. It's perfectly fine. In all of those, they've seen... You know, presence of these type of shorts, no worries. And in fact, um, a few days after that, actually on the 23rd, so just a few days ago, it returned to normal voltages again, which is also similar to how they've acted on other spacecraft, where it'll kind of have this soft short for a little while and that has a possibility of coming back to normal. But we have been back on science and they were able to... Um, so once they're able to, you know, break it down and say, all right, we have the cause, we see what's going on, return to science activities, they're actually able to use the robotic arm. They had uh, some powdered rock oh. from actually, remember like six months ago, we were drilling into the targets? Yeah. And it kept some of that, uh, I remember talking about how it kept some in the scoop. So it's like, right. then they'll be able to test it as they go along the road. And now they're still being able to use... A, a number of portions of it have already been used to be analyzed, and they just had another little bit of that uh, that scoop. They're able to analyze some more. Keep analyze it as it as it. Uh, that's so cool that it can pick stuff up, move on, and then while it's on the go, continue to run yeah. tests. That's 
pretty sophisticated, Heather. It's pretty yep. sophisticated. Now it just needs to be able to scour the internet to uh, look at images, and then it's nothing can stop it. Except yeah, the bandwidth for... to Mars is really slow. Yeah, and you never know those soft shorts get in the way sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, any other uh, details on the rover? Not yet. All right, we'll jump in. I got the time machine all fired up, and I got good okay. news, Heather. Uh, I accessorized. I added a DVD player. So if we got a long trip ahead of us, you're going to be entertained. Here we go. Close oh. the door. Close the door. All right. So it's this feels like a little bit of a longer trip. Now, of course, to the audience, it involved time travel. So they probably just thought it was like 10 seconds or so. But yeah. uh, this week, our destination is 281 years ago, December 3rd, 1732. Heather, what happened this week in science? Artificial respiration. Now, this is probably not actually the first time it happened, but it's the first um, time that there was a clinical de uh, description of it. Ah. So there was a coal miner that was uh, rescued from a fire. And so a surgeon, uh, William Tosach, saw there, by the time he got up to the surface, there was you know, no pulse, no breathing, no anything that he saw. So, you know, all appearances dead to him. So give him some rescue breathing. You know, you know, blue air in his lungs. Mouth to mouth kind of thing. Yep, mouth to mouth. Saw the chest raising. Then he felt a couple of uh, quick heart, you know, quick quick uh, beats of the heart. So then he said, all right, that, that worked. Awesome. And then was it like 30 minutes later, you know, he started some eye flutters. And, you know, an hour later he was... You know, well, like, I think essentially two hours later, he was fully conscious again and perfectly normal, except the fact that he had this gap in his memory. Wow. So, but it was. That was a probably little... a huge deal. Oh, yeah. Now, they'd seen from ancient times that something happened to, you know, has connection between breathing and the heart. Mm. So it's it's probably been used in the past before then, but that was the first time that a in medical literature, he was able to specifically write down what was going on. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, I'm recalibrating the side by 2000 right now, so that way we can look up into the sky this week. That's right. On Friday, November the 29th, about 45 minutes before sunrise, you're able to see the star Spica to the lower left of the moon. In general for the planets, this week we have Venus being the evening star. Around dusk, look to the southwest. It'll be setting more than an hour after dark. And it'll be, right now, it's at its highest and brightest that it will be for the rest of the year. Mars is over at 1 a.m. local time, rising to the, rising about 1 a.m. And moving to the upper southeastern skies by about dawn. Jupiter, another favorite planet, about mm -hmm. 8 p.m. local time. going to be rising into the east to northeast. And you'll have two stars from the constellation Gemini, Castor and Pollux, over to its left. It's going to be at its highest point at around 3 a.m. local time. And we're also coming up on January 5th, Jupiter will be in opposition, which means that it will be completely opposite of the sun from, from Earth. So, now, you're going to be hanging around, family maybe, mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. if you're in the U.S., mm -hmm. and so you might be stuck. You want to look cool, you want to look smart, remember, you got in the evening, got Venus over in the southwest, and Jupiter's going to be rising about 8 p.m. in the east-northeast. And you'll be able to go to the show notes. Scroll on down to the bottom. That's right. You two can look really smart around your family. <laughs> you know what you look. could do? Like, just before you get there, 
like you know, like we're gonna get to this we're gonna get to this the science talk here in a second you bring it up yeah. on your smartphone you go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com you look for episode 110 and you just scroll down and then like when the when the smart when the smart talk comes out you just pull out this phone and go yeah 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 mars about 1 a.m local time rises around 1 a.m moving to the upper southeast skies by dawn yeah <laughs> forget it- science talk when it gets to the awkward silence and right. you want to change the subject. True, true. Hey, guys, look, yeah. that's Venus. Yeah. Come, I'll show you. That's, then, that's very useful, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, see, what you need is Pocket Heather, where they just pull out their smartphone and <laughs> you're, you got your, your face on an app. They tap that and then they just say, hey, Heather, what's up in the sky right now? And then Pocket Heather <laughs> comes up and says, well, Mars, it's 1 a.m. local time, rises around 1 a.m., moving to the upper southeast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Heather. Well, anything else we need to cover in this week's episode? I don't think so. All right. Well, look, we'd love it if you want to get a hold of us. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and pop that contact link and choose SciBite. Or you can tweet at Heather, JB underscore Mars underscore base. All right, Heather. Well, have a great week and thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning this week's episode of SciBite. Don't forget to join us live on a Tuesday, would you? You can find out what time we're at over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. It'll convert it to your time zone. And you can also subscribe to get the show weekly. All right, everyone. Thanks so much. We'll see you right back here next week. Bye.